What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Hey everybody, welcome to Creature Feature, the show where we take a little sightseeing trip inside the minds of humans and animals, looking at some weird behaviors, taking photos of us next to the prefrontal cortex, and riding on the hippocampus coaster. Today we're talking about city slickers. How do animals cope with human cities? What are some of the ways animals have adapted to human society? And did we domesticate dogs or did dogs domesticate us? And we're definitely not sick of these mother heckin' dogs on this mother heckin' train. We'll discuss this more as we answer the age-old question, how much trash can you fit inside a seagull? Spoiler, a lot. And later I'll be talking to Dr. Greg Pauley, a real-life researcher and curator at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County. Joining me today is Katie Willard, actor, writer, producer, cat owner, and snail superhero. Hello. Quickly explain why I call you a snail superhero, because this is very cute. (laughs) Because ever since I was a kid, um, seeing snails smushed on the sidewalk made me so sad, and so... Ever since I was a kid, if I see a snail on the sidewalk, obviously going mm-hmm. in a line, I pick them up and take them to the other side off the yeah. sidewalk so they don't get crushed. I like to imagine they've just kind of created a whole religion around you as like this being that's like the savior. I mean, that's the ultimate goal, isn't right. it? To be the head of some of a of a religion, some kind of snail religion. <laughs> yeah, it's great because like I don't have to. I won't go to jail because I'm a cult yeah. leader. One of the most defining characteristics of humans is our ability to form society. Get enough of us together and we'll form entire cities, bustling with connections. But what happens when you have a phobia of cities themselves? One group of anthropophobia patients cope with their phobia of groups by forming a club. It sounds like someone with arachnophobia jumping into a bathtub full of spiders, but it's actually one of the most logical ways to treat their phobia of society. In 1970, a group of anthropophobic men were discharged from a private therapeutic institute in Tokyo. They started meeting at coffee shops to discuss their fear of socializing. 
It may sound oxymoronic, but it makes sense when you think about it. They all shared a common fear, so they could bond and discuss the fear in a way that felt more like therapy than socializing, tricking their brains into allowing them to form what amounted to a social club. They, wittingly or not, also treated themselves with exposure therapy. Remember how I joked about jumping in a bath with the spiders? That's actually not a bad way to treat arachnophobia or any other phobia. When you expose yourself to your fear repeatedly and find you survive it, the fear will go away. Maybe I should jump in a bath full of the concept of death. Anyways, this club for clinical misanthropes was actually a genius way to hack their brains and cope with their fears. But how do animals cope with human cities? Society is not made for them, and in fact is often completely antithetical to their survival. As we'll discuss, some animals can't hack it in the big city, but others, like the anthropophobic men who formed a club, have found incredible loopholes that allows them to exploit a hostile, human-dominated world and thrive. Anyways, Katie, uh, what would be your response to robots slowly taking over society? And they wouldn't be like the cool robots who are like, as Katie Willard is to snails, robots are not to us. They don't like pick us up and like put us on a little soft patch of grass. They are big robots who just really don't give a care about I, us. I guess I would probably go off into the, the nature where there is no... Mm -hmm far away from where they are and just continue to live a nomadic existence. Right. I, I think it's less of a, like, fleeing, scared thing and more of just a, like, oh, it's time to move again. It's, it's time to go just start using rocks as toilets again. <laughs> Let's just get out of the, get out of Dodge. Let's go to, I don't get know why Bakersfield grid. was the first place. Get some pine cones <laughs> in Bakersfield. <laughs> My mom grew up in Bakersfield, and it's like when they rerouted the highway so it didn't go through there. It's just like it's like, well, it's still 1960. Yeah, I forever went, now. I went to the Kern County Oil Museum once. Oh, because exciting. Yeah, because Rolling Roadshow, which does like screenings of movies in their locations, did There Will Be Blood at Kern yeah. County Oil Museum because that was where Paul Thomas Anderson did a lot of his like research for it. Interesting. Um. But yeah, it seems like just there's just not a lot. <laughs> it's just not the, a it's lot just, going on. It's gonna be the '60s forever, and you know that's that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. It works. Other than the racism, that's okay. I know, just a little bubble. <laughs> um, I feel like if for me, I would feel like it's inevitable that the robots are gonna find me in the woods or in Bakersfield. So like, <laughs> I would. Uh, I think that I would try to ingratiate myself. Is like a pet, like like you can comb my hair and give me treats. Oh, and I snuggle. And I snuggle. Yeah, yeah. I will wear ridiculous clothing at your behest, big <laughs> I, robots. I will put on a cape. <laughs> like I will poop on command. Yeah. Take me outside. I'll poop anywhere. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I guess isn't that the path of all animal? You know, all eventually domesticated animals is yeah. like run, 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 and then then oh, you'll like, feed me. You know what? Okay, I'll hang Listen, out. Listen, you give me enough corn, and I'll just lie down on my back. Well, like you think of a, just a feral. I, I mean, I have plenty of friends who have feral, who now have feral cats. Yeah. that live in their house. Yeah, like cats that would not be anywhere cats. near them, and then would yeah. eat a little food. Yeah, and then get but a that's little closer. Kind of like squatting. I feel like cats <laughs> are squatters. Yeah, they can pretty much <laughs> just be anywhere. But so it's interesting. What I'm getting at here with my robots thing is <laughs> that there are different ways that animals respond to urbanization. So human cities encroaching on their habitat. 
There's um, avoiders, which is what you would be if you was aminals. If I was aminals. <laughs> if you was aminals. And so they are not able to adapt to human environments. And so they avoid urbanized areas. They avoid contact with humans. And they really only make appearances in the city if they're migrating or fleeing their shrinking habitat. Right. And they're usually unable to adapt due to very specialized survival, reproductive, or feeding strategy. Or like they come into conflict with humans. And then there's a few other ways that animals respond to urbanization. There's adapters and exploiters, and they respond by changing their behavior or physiology to better fit their new human-altered environment. So they try to use human cities as best as they can. What I see in my head is just that gif of the raccoon going up on the porch to the cat food and getting a hand scoop of the cat food and then running away on its hind legs. And I, what I love about raccoons, and as we'll talk about in a little bit, seagulls, is that when they do the stealing, they mm-hmm. do a burglary. They have that little jaunty runaway where they're like, gotta go, gotta go, gotta go. And I'm out of here. Well, yeah, raccoons are the, th- I, what I think is funny about raccoons too is like, most of the time it's like, okay, I gotta grab the trash, get out of here. Like, mm-hmm. we gotta go. But then there are some that are just like, I mean, my mom and I once almost got trapped in our subterranean parking garage because there were two raccoons on the Mm. stairs that were this under the stairs that were the Mm. size of golden retrievers like they were really big and like I don't think I've ever been worried about like a raccoon because most of the time they scurry right right, like when you get near they're like oh no no not worth it like abort mission let's go away um we walked up saw them and Mm. they just stood there and just stared at us like um a a raccoon who stands (laughs) up and is bold is just kind of scary that, that's not that's not good news. Well, because it doesn't go in my head with yeah. like, oh, the animals, they're just afraid of us. Like, yeah. they're more afraid of you than you are A of them. A bold raccoon is one to be feared. My favorite bold raccoon story is uh, one of my mom's best friends, Donna Marie, was sleeping one night. Oh. And she heard noise in her backyard. And mm. she was like, hmm. So she turned on the back, the lights to the backyard and looked out over her balcony to her pool. And there was a family of five raccoons swimming in her pool. Just having a family vacation. Just chilling. Just- doing sw- str- <laughs> swimming in the swimming pool. And she just turned off the light Listen, and went back to bed. I mean, no one else is using it. It's no, raccoon I know. time. I know. It's off season. It's raccoon swim. Yeah. Uh, so that would be an urban adapter for sure. <laughs> that is the most adaptive adaptation. Come on, I've ever kids, heard. let's go to the pool. We're going to the. It's just like it's like a doofy dad and like uh, like a Marge like mom where it's like, well, well, heck, we'll just use our pool then. And then the kids are like, me, want to eat some apples or whatever. <laughs> just the raccoon family. God, that's gonna be a cartoon, I'm sure. Yeah. But let's talk about some of the unfortunate urban avoiders. And there's one that's. Uh, native to Los Angeles, the mountain lion. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And have you ever seen a mountain lion in person? I have not. I've seen tracks. Mm -hmm. And I've also heard like, oh, they just saw what, like if I was in Griffith or whatever, I'd be like, oh, they they saw one like yesterday. It was like when you were out there. Yeah. But it's, I mean, I've never seen one in person either. Mm, Yeah. Uh, And it's, I think it, it's just so rare because they'll avoid the city. They don't want no part of it. And like I said, it's because, I mean, they will come into conflict with humans and they just, they're too specialized of an animal to really be able to adapt like a raccoon can. So I want to tell you the story about Griffith Park's lonely single male mountain lion. Um, He's seeking hot cougars in his area, but there aren't (laughs) any. He's the only one. 
so the National Park Service named him P-22, um, which is, I wish it it stood for something cool like Predator 22, but I think it's just like... <laughs> or like how many ladies he's banged, yeah, 22 like, <laughs> whole ladies. Or like he's really super handsome. He's like, uh. he's like, is he a 10 out of 10? No, he's, he's a 22. 22. Hottest cougar ever. Um, but no, it's just like the like sequence in which they... Trap Track mark, yeah. yeah. Um, so he traveled from the Santa Monica Mountains to try to find his own territory. And in the wild, they require really large territories. I'm Elmer Fudd all of a sudden. Um, over 200 square miles uh, is for like one male wow. lion. And his current range in Griffith Park is nine square miles. It's tiny. It's like trying to live in San Francisco, am I right? Poor. It's hard, it's hard <laughs> to get by these days. It's hard. Rent yeah. is very high. Expensive. Expensive. It's hard to date hard in to the date. city. I feel like P22 is just like the millennial experience. <laughs> just in mountain lion form. Yeah. Can I ask you a question? Mm-hmm. Sure. So, because there were cubs recently born, mm. I think, in the the the... Mountain lion cubs, because there used to be female. There was like, was it right? Wasn't there like a in, female mountain in lion? Park? I don't know if it was in Griffith Park or in the Santa there Monica could, Mountains. Could, would be probably the Santa Monica Mountains, yeah. Oh, okay. Because, yeah, something had happened during the fires, I think, where they were like oh, yeah. really nervous that, that they- That the cubs had been killed, yeah. yeah, yeah I think yeah. that was the Santa Monica Mountains. Interesting. Griffith Park, the issue with that, why he's so isolated, is he's surrounded by freeways. Freeways, yeah. There's yeah. no way to get Yeah, and he actually had traveled with a few of his companions, but then they got killed by vehicles, so he was like the only one to survive. He's got a tragic Disney backstory. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, he, there's no mate for him, and he's able to survive by eating the raccoon, coyote, uh, and also deer. And it's interesting because the reason deer can uh, thrive is that we have these big cemeteries and golf courses, which is like, as you may know, like the only green parts in Los Angeles right. is either rich people golf courses or dead people cemeteries. <laughs> um, but uh, it's actually... There's like a few creepy stories of people like they'll give the flowers to their their dead loved ones in the cemeteries and deers will come to eat them. And then the mountain P-22 will just like like just like Metallica up in there and like just just wait. Like I imagine like you're grieving. You're like, oh, man, look, it's maybe it's grandpa's spirit come in the form of a deer and he's eating the flowers and you're like, Look, Grandpa's visiting us, and then this mountain is just like guts everywhere, and it's like, don't look, children, Grandpa's dying again. Yeah, yeah. the spirit this time his soul's dead too. Mm-hmm. Now my uh, my best friend, she puts flowers on Mama Cass's grave at Forest Lawn, and and at the flower place they have like a specific they they have flowers that you don't put in. Uh, like offerings for grave sites because of deer, like flowers that if deer ate their plants, if deer ate them, it would oh it would make poison them sick. the deer. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's a good they have point. Rules. Cause, yeah, because there are like certain flowers that are inedible. And yeah, make like a deer lilies sick. for kitties. That would suck even worse. Like you're visiting your grandma's grave, and like a deer comes up, and it's like, oh, it's so lovely, the circle of life, and it just starts vomiting <laughs> like a frat bro, just like. Oh. Or you leave the flowers, and then you come back a week later, and there's just a dead deer on your <laughs> just <laughs> a sacrifice on your grandmother's grave. <laughs> 
So actually, also, speaking of being poisoned, P-22 has faced some troubles because he eats, you know, rodents and stuff. They'll, they're pretty opportunistic. They'll eat any meat they can get their hands on. But he was found with rodenticide in his bloodstream a few times when, like, the conservationists will capture him and check up on his health. And, um, and like, in high enough doses, like, the rodenticide can kill mountain lions. But actually, like, just for him, it caused him to have main... Patchy, right? Yeah, yeah. Right, because it compromises their immune systems. Um, and then, like, it makes it harder for them to fight mange. But he's actually, I think, so... As of now, I think he's made a full recovery, and he's doing pretty well. B-22 is scrappy. He is scrappy, and it's I feel so bad for him because, like, he's doing all these things, scrapping on by, but there's just, like, he is never going to find no. a mate. Is it a situation where it's too detrimental to the ecosystem to introduce? Yeah, I, I think that they don't really want to mess. Like, with they it. don't want to yeah. transport a female lion who's doing well in, Somewhere like, the Santa else, Monica right. Mountains because Griffith Park is not really good zone and it's also right. like i think if they took him and put him in the santa monica mountains he and another male mountain lion might just like kill right. each other he moved for a reason right so that's an avoider um so now let's talk about adapters and exploiters because this is really interesting adapters are a little less aggressively successful <laughs> than, than uh exploiters, but they, they can manage in mm. urban areas. So an example would be bobcats. Uh, you know, they live on the periphery of urban areas. They are smaller. There's not really conflict with humans as much because right. they're not big. Humans aren't like, oh, you know, a bobcat, got to kill it. Right. Um, and like uh, they feed on rodents and small mammals and rodents are exploiters. They do super well in cities. So. Yeah, pizza rat. <laughs> pizza rat. <laughs> or that little, what was it, a chinchilla? It was some rodent in Australia that got into the bakery and oh, ate all the was... pastries until it couldn't move. Yes, yes. <laughs> that was actually an Australian opossum. Oh. Yeah, yeah. The I one love that... possums. And it was in like a box of uh, <laughs> jelly donuts. <laughs> 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 and Australian opossums are way cuter than American possums like American possums are just such like they're nightmares they're grunge versions of yeah. like the cute fluffy Australian opossums I just think they're so misunderstood people are so mean to possums Aww. and they just they're trying their best they do they are really scary though the way they just come back to life <laughs> and just like <laughs> <laughs> yes but they are they are great they are I do like them too so you know the the bobcats do okay they still face some threats from urbanization like we talked about the the highway system and freeways and roads really screw up with uh, animals because like what happens is it's called a habitat fragmentation so you know, they try to cross a highway, they could get killed. And so it creates these genetic islands, basically, where they have these kind of this genetic bottleneck where they can't really cross the freeways. So they just have this smaller community where it's not as much genetic diversity. Right. And they can be taken out more quickly, essentially, by yeah. genetic mutant, like, or whatever. Right, right. And, or just come out weird, you know, with like <laughs> six fingers. Pull off. And- like a lazy eye. <laughs> <laughs> I well, I think it's like in Norway or the Netherlands or somewhere. I can't remember where, but they have those animal crossing high like overpasses mm. that go from one side of a territory to another, so that animals are able to cross yeah. over without risk of being hit by cars. Yeah, 
That's pretty cool. That's also sort of like uh, in Japan, they're the snow monkeys who um, they use telephone wires to cross like when it's snowy. Because they just don't want to get their little paws yeah, cold. Yeah, it's too cold. It's too cold for their little paws. It's too cold for their <laughs> feet. So they should go on a telephone wars. I mean... If there's a really funny video. You could just... If you look like Snow Monkeys Japan, like, you'll find a video of them. On. Hours of joy. And it, well, and, and they they like all go in a little a neat little line on these telephone wires. It's just like, you can just hear... It's really cute. So here's an urban exploiter that everyone knows and loves, the seagull. It is just a trash compactor of an animal. It is so opportunistic. It'll eat fish, human food, garbage, cat food, insects, small rodents, eggs, Doritos, small reptiles, smaller birds, sandwiches, vats of tiki masala, hot dogs, pigeons, potato chips, tinfoil, coins, socks, human fingers, small babies, cookies, eclairs, house keys, their own babies. Flying rats. I'm from San Diego, and so like I grew up in a beach community, yeah. and seagulls are just yeah. They are they are so aggressive too. If you go to the beach and you have any food, they will swarm you. And they're they're very so. It's interesting because they're highly social animals, and this is what kind of is distinctive about them versus like a mountain lion. They're small, highly mobile, very socially intelligent. And they have this mobbing behavior where, you know, like they just like in the Hitchcock birds, they'll surround you. They'll bully other birds out of their territory. And so it like really helps them in a city because they can just kind of bully their way into these niche feeding areas. And they also will eat literally anything. anything. The tiki masala thing I mentioned, mm-hmm. that's not a joke. There was There's a picture of the seagull who landed in a vat of tiki masala and he's like bright orange. It's uh, pretty cute. Aww. I'll probably put that on Twitter or something. Uh, <laughs> what a piece of garbage. I, can you imagine if you like got some tiki masala and you're like, this tastes a little gully. Tastes like bird. Tastes like bird. Tastes like bird. Tastes like um, feathers. This tastes like bird. Uh, <laughs> so... They're very inquisitive. They'll boldly investigate their environment. And they'll go to landfills and just cram themselves full of garbage and trash. Like they've opened up seagulls that have been eating at uh, landfills. And there's just like tin foil, plastic, like pieces of metal. Q-tips. Pogs probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think about with seagulls, like I grew up in, in La Jolla and San Diego and and. Uh, my high school was primarily outdoors, as a lot of Southern California schools are, because the weather's nice, so you can walk yeah. from building to building. It's not a huge deal. And we had a huge quad where you'd eat lunch. And I think lunch was like at noon. And so around one, they would start to circle yeah. because they knew that lunch would be over. Yeah. And then they could descend. And then once that bell rang, they started to descend. And yeah. so we'd all, you'd have to like run, go with your, your binder on your head because they'd start shitting. Yeah. That's the, the worst funniest... part about them is the uncontrollable crap. Yeah. Just everywhere. And, just raining but, down. And seagulls, they don't have the cute little tiny like bird dookie. No, they it's have like big old... water with. It's St- like toothpaste. It like it's brown like toothpaste. A big glob of stinky toothpaste. Yes, but then on days where we had um, like half days for whatever reason, uh, and we'd get out, they'd still on the yeah. dot at one start to circle, like, even though no one oh, was uh, at school anymore. So uh, where's, where's the food you got? Yeah, where is uh, where is everybody? You want we should uh, break your legs or, or what? <laughs> yeah, they, they are they are mobs. They will form uh, literal mobs and they will attack other birds. And they're actually really 
intelligent. So like, you gotta respect the seagull because yeah. they, um, they understand each other's warning vocalizations and they even learn each other's personalities. So if you have like a kind of twitchy seagull who's like always doing false alarms, <laughs> they learn to ignore them. Like. Like the seagull who cried I'd wolf. wolf. Yeah. I just um, and uh, they'll listen more to the ones that are like the trustworthy seagulls. Like we were like, hmm, this is a situation in which I should go. Bah! Bah! Um, I think about being on, um, there's a bad lip reading did a series of Star Wars songs. Yes. And one of them is called Seagulls. Stop yeah. it now that I just listened to because mm-hmm. it's a good song. Is a that lot. the Yoda one? Like where it's yeah. like. Ooh, ah, ooh, 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 ah. <laughs> Everyone listened to it. It's yeah. fabulous. But uh, my mom really got into the song. And so we were listening to it in the car. And we were driving south on Fairfax almost to Wilshire. And then there's just a seagull above mm. our car. And I'm like, what are you doing here? Why are you at Fairfax and Wilshire? You are far away from God the ocean. God is a seagull and he sent you his prophet sign. I was like almost looked at like the animal meaning of seagull. <laughs> it's like you are garbage. We're listening to seagulls and there's a seagull. I feel whoa. like there's a meaning here. Whoa. <laughs> just some ass backwards did, dumb seagull. Did, did, did. <laughs> This fucking tight dude. <laughs> bro. 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 That's, that's fucking sick it was, dude. It was so great. That's fucking sick dude. <laughs> you just got to pay attention to the world around just you, gotta, man. You got to tune in, dude. So, <laughs> so they'll also, an, a cute thing. Here's one cute thing about seagulls. The only cute thing about them. Mated pairs will utter soft murmurs to each other as they seek out a nesting area for their eggs. They're very particular about where they nest. They're good parents. Except when they But otherwise, they're good parents, and their murmurs are vocalizations indicating where they think the nest should be put, and they kind of work together to reach a consensus. Like, here's where a little egg nursery will be. I love that it's like, oh, what about here? Uh, What do you think about this? It's like, like, it's like the 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 husband uh, seagulls like, what about over here? And then the wife is like, that's like literally on the edge of a rock. Can you like at least try? (laughs) So. Some of the less intuitive effects of urbanization is seen in birds who are not exploiters. They're actually uh, avoiders. Um, And that is bird divorce. Bird divorce. Bird divorce. Bird divorce. Legally binding in the state of California. It's the saddest thing out in American society today. (laughs) Bird bird divorce. divorce. Come on, you know, it's just the the degradation of society, morals. Yep, nobody believes in the family anymore. I know. The bird family. (laughs) The bird family. Um, so in humans, people are more likely to divorce in cities versus suburbs. Um, and, you know, there's like a variety of causes, but one potential cause is like difference in income. So people in suburbs are typically more financially stable. So it turns out, you know, having money and resources to like go to couples therapy or who like. Who knew? Yeah, who knew? <laughs> money makes quality of life better, it what turns a, what out. A Um, But, you know, we don't know what the exact cause is. But in birds, the contrast is uh, in suburbs are real bad news for birds. They will get divorced a lot due to suburban crawl into their territory. Because suburbs usually, it's like around, you know, the nice leaf-lined streets. Well, the reason it's lined with leaves is you're like kind of near like wooded areas. Um, So uh, there's a study... um, done in Seattle, Washington, of uh, these urban avoider songbirds. Um, They looked at the Swainson's thrush and Pacific wrens, who are 
both urban avoiders and they will divorce each other in response to the trauma of the suburbs invading their habitat. Uh, so they abandon their nests and then they just like stop seeing each other and they get with new new mates. And this is like similar to the human patterns of divorce where like environmental and economic stress may factor into splitting up. That's so, like when you move, you have your college boyfriend and then you like decide to like after you're out of college, like go move in together. Yeah. But then everything's different. You're yeah. like, oh, no, this was a terrible this idea. Only worked in college. It Wait, must what? Have, it must have been the chicken nuggets <laughs> and, and the tater tots. The chicken nugget haze. Those, those tater tots held our relationship together, dude. <laughs> Bro. <laughs> dude. Should have looked at those signs. It's the glue that kept us together. It was literally like some kind of industrial glue. Some starchy cement. Some starchy cement that held their love together. That's really upsetting. I know. Because songbirds are so lovely. They, yeah, they're supposed to be sort of like the doves that you release on your wedding, which you shouldn't do. Don't do that. Don't yeah, do what that. the, no. You're murdering doves, yeah. monsters, really seriously. Like if you have like captive doves and you release them, they're like, uh... Yeah, okay, like, what now, dude? Yeah, where <laughs> like, do I go? Uh, uh, you've removed like, me from everything I know. What? 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 What is this? Open sky. I mean, like, congratulations yeah. and everything, but also I am woefully underprepared for this. <laughs> yeah, it's just like they will they will die. But also they will maybe divorce, too, because birds are just, you know, there's nothing sacred. Birds are as messed up as we are. I just imagine little bird feet signing like a little piece of paperwork, like the paper. Bird attorneys. Like, like, I guess I guess this is it. Yeah. Just going like, and you will get half of the millet. And some sticks. <laughs> that's my favorite stick. You know that's my favorite stick. <laughs> oh, upsetting. So sad. But I mean, if they're happier in the long run, I guess it's better. Yeah. I mean, until all of their territory is taken over yeah. by suburbs and stuff. The world sucks. Yep. <laughs> Not all birds are as shy as our divorcee songbirds. There's a type of bird who looks innocent enough, but is actually a vicious invader. And it's all Shakespeare's fault. Starlings are small black birds with white dots, named such because they look like a star-speckled sky. They're highly intelligent, able to open the tops off of milk jugs, and like parrots, they're able to learn and mimic human words. So what's the problem? Well. There are over 200 million European starlings in North America, with flocks big enough to sometimes darken the sky, looking like a large cloud, strobing in what is known as murmurations as they change directions. But they're non-native, and a big problem for North American birds, including bluebirds, flickers, and woodpeckers, only two of which sounds like a slang for wieners. Starlings will kick them out of their nests, making it difficult for these indigenous species to breed successfully. They can be a nuisance for humans as well. Large flocks can demolish entire crops of wheat, they're vectors for disease, and their nests are even known to cultivate a spooky fungus called Pistoplasma capsulatum, whose fungal spores can cause histoplasmosis in humans which can cause fever, chills, coughing up blood, and if left untreated, will attack your whole body, including the central nervous system, adrenal glands, and liver, causing blindness and eventually death. So how did these little harbingers of doom get to North America? The cause of most of our problems, an overenthusiastic fanboy. In 1980, Eugene Shefilin, 
A New York pharmaceutical manufacturer had an evil, nerdy plan. He wanted to introduce every bird mentioned in Shakespeare's plays and poems to North America. Other birds he had tried, such as nightingales and skylarks, had failed to thrive and died off. Unfortunately, Shakespeare had fatefully made mention of one other bird in Henry IV, the starling. Remember, starlings can be taught human words, so Shakespeare wrote this line. Nay, I'll have a starling shall be brought to speak nothing but Mortimer, and give it to him to keep his anger still in motion. So, basically, a starling was taught to say a name that annoyed the king as a sort of old-timey prank. Uh, so Shakespeare dork Shafilin imported 60 starlings from Europe and released these winged demons into New York's Central Park. Today, there are hundreds of millions of these feathered bullets, as the U.S. Department of Agriculture likes to call them. So there's a bunch of birds outside our window staring uh, menacingly. We're going to take a quick break to adjust the situation. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. parasites? A newspaper column once answered this with a controversial yes. The San Diego Union Tribune, my hometown by the way, ran a column titled, Let's Be Honest America, Dogs Are Parasites, Not Man's Best Friend. 
Twitter responded, let's say, tepidly, telling the newspaper to go fuck itself, amongst other strongly worded complaints. But is there any truth to the claim that dogs are parasites? The article's main assertion is that dogs are master manipulators. All the pampering, stroller rides, grooming, expensive care, these are all signs that dogs have gamed the system and asserted themselves as our furry overlords. The author cites a 1999 article called The Truth About Dogs, which explains that rather than us humans domesticating dogs, dogs may have exploited human empathy in order to live with us in a way domesticating themselves. So the less aggressive, more human-friendly proto-dogs would be favored by our human ancestors, and they'd earn the enviable position of man's best friend. This, I think, is a pretty strong and compelling theory. But to then call dogs parasites is not only cynical, but scientifically inaccurate. The definition of parasites are organisms that benefit at the cost to a host. Dogs are, at worst, commensalistic symbiotes, a fancy way of saying an animal who benefits from a host at no cost or harm to the host. But in my opinion, they're mutualistic, meaning we gain as much from them as they gain from us, be it in the work they do for us herding sheep and eating rats, the emotional benefits we receive, and all the Instagram likes we get when we post pictures of them in cute shirts. Seriously, look me in the eye and tell me that a dog who tolerates being festooned with bows, hats, and booties isn't paying for his meals. Some dogs, however, have figured out a way to leech off of human society without having to pay with their dignity, and we have to go to Russia to find them. Katie. Yes. You like dogs? I do. You like dogs? I love dogs. <laughs> they are good puppers. They're good puppers. They are heckin' sweet. They're very sweet. And I want to smush off eyes. Would you want dogs to be able to talk? No. I know, right? I feel like it would just make things weird. Yeah. Like, it's fine the way it is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they, they express through their behavior how yeah, they're feeling. You, That's all I need. Because you'd imagine, like, like an up dog, like, like uh, you know, the dog from Up. Yeah. Going like, you know, oh, I'm sweet and lovable. I hid under your porch because I love you. Yeah, but in reality, they'd be like, my anus, my anus. Yeah. Yeah, I need I'm to. Gonna, I'm gonna poop everywhere. I gotta lick my anus. What is that? What is that? I feel like it'd be a lot of yelling. Yeah, just like, oh my god. Hey, there's someone outside. Hey, someone is a block away, <laughs> and you just be like, I can't. Like, you already bark. Like, yeah. I know what you are saying. Someone yeah. is away, like yeah, a, yeah. close to our door. Yeah. The mailman is here. Yeah, I do. I have a. I, I mean, I love cats and I love dogs, and and I have a cat just. Well, I love cats, but also it's just easier for me right now. Yeah. And I can't live in a place where I have a dog. But, like, I do just want, like, just like a sweet boy. Yeah. Just like a sweet boy dog that just is, like, a dope. Yeah. A big me. doofy dog. But, there, yep. I mean, like, I got a dog. And <laughs> I, my impression as a former cat owner is, like, dogs are all these sort of doofy, lovable dogs. But a lot of them just are extremely emotionally needy. Like yeah, neurotic. Really yeah, neurotic. Just like... Just like my dog, who every time the printer goes off or something beeps or my phone gets a text message, she like gets on my shoulders and like is like her face is in my face and she's like, "What is that? What is that? What is that? What does that sound?" <laughs> yeah, Turn it off. At least my cat, my cat is neurotic, but my cat is also aloof. Right, right. So it's kind of just like I'm gonna just deal with my my stuff like over here, whereas dogs are like, "I'm having problems and you need address to address them, human. You need to fix it. Yeah, you need to fix this right now." Yeah. 
And so there's a good reason that they're like that. Uh, dogs have been domesticated for around 15,000 years. Um, so they've basically co-evolved with us over a really long period of time, which, um, you know, it's created this situation where we can kind of communicate with them in a way. We, we can train them. And they also uh, are sort of like they're very good at getting us to pay attention to them, those big puppy dog eyes Duh. and like – just like the wines they make, we we feel the need to to help them, and they also help us. So, um, but what's crazy is, so you would think that most dogs in the world are pet dogs, but eighty three percent of dogs are unrestrained. So that means they're either feral, they're stray, or they're village free range dogs. Right. There's nine hundred million dogs in the world. Two hundred million are strays, and in Moscow alone, there are thirty five thousand stray dogs that's a lot yeah that's a lot of babies that's a lot of babies <laughs> um, but <laughs> i can't I'm, i apologize i cannot help it when i talk <laughs> about dogs kind of to to put that in perspective the number of wolves in all of russia is around fifty thousand. wow yeah um so there's a small group of intrepid stray dogs in moscow who have learned to navigate the subway system <laughs> I've seen. I think I've seen a video. <laughs> oh, good. Of yeah. This. <laughs> yeah. There, there are great videos online of these dogs where they just like they're like in the subway. Uh, they're they're at like the subway station. They're just like waiting around with all the other commuters, and they're like, gonna go to work, gonna go to work. Then the <laughs> train doors open. Some it's like, trash. And they're like, they're like, excuse me, pardon me, ma'am, just me and a dog going to work. <laughs> um, so they were studied by uh, Russian biologist Andrei Poyarkov and animal expert Andrei Nuronov. Um, so Poyarkov um, observed stray dogs becoming more wolf-like with greater intelligence, pack structure, and they were losing domesticated dog behaviors such as tail wagging and physical traits such as spotted coats. So the more feral they became, the more wolf-like. Um, and then these more feral wolf-like dogs were also exploiting the subway system. Um, so there are three types of Dog commuters. There are dogs who live in the subway, but they don't travel. They just live there because yeah. it's warm, lots of people. Yeah, you're in Russia. It's snowy. It's snowy. And, and it's also just like, you know, commuters bumping up, dropping their pretzels and stuff. They're borscht. That's not really Russian, <laughs> is it? Is borscht Russian? Polish? Maybe it's Polish. But also, like, who's walking around with a big old pot of borscht on I don't the subway, know. Katie? Few, I'm like a couple <laughs> generations removed Russian, so I don't actually know just anything. Just sloshing around. I just don't a big actually old know anything of borscht. About <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, and then the second type of subway dogs are those who use the subway to travel instead of walking. They're, they're just like, you know, I need to get from point A to point B. I know the subway will take me there, and so I just hop right on there, you know, open up a good newspaper and eat that newspaper because I'm a Roll dog. Roll around on top of it. <laughs> um, and it's really cute, too, because, like, sometimes they travel in, like, pairs or, or groups, and, like, when one dog is like, well, it's our stop now, they'll, like, inform the other dog, like, hey, hey, uh, Barfy, it's our stop. We got to get we gotta off. go. Like, oh, my God. We got to go. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, the third type is my favorite. It's dogs who use the subway to commute to location for busking purposes. So they will uh, live in areas that are good for sleeping. So like suburban areas. Um, and then like they will go into the urban areas, like into the city to go beg for food. It's like people who work in in Manhattan mm -hmm. but commute from Connecticut. Yeah. They're like, it's easier to buy a house out there and, you know. 
We like the the wide open well, spaces. So I, I'm a dog. I can't afford rent. <laughs> City rent? No. I'd rather just live in Jersey. I live in a drain pipe. <laughs> and I gotta commute to work. I mean, it's just like I work at a tech startup. My. <laughs> Yeah, you live in like out in in uh, in you know, I in live Sacramento in a bad, a bad and then you take and I eat my own dookie. <laughs> <laughs> I just like, but my favorite thing about that is there's the first dog, like the first dog who accidentally like got on the subway and realized what happened, and then was like, he's like, oh, we gotta, I gotta I've tell everybody. A magical portal. It's wizards. Or like, oh man. I've been here before, but it took me way longer yeah. to get here before. Yeah. Like the thought process that had to go Fast into travel. like, yeah, like oh, this is something we gotta keep doing because my legs are small. Guys, have you heard of train? It's the hot new trend. They're like Ted's drunk again. <laughs> Someone take it away from him. <laughs> take the borscht away from the dog. Um, another fun thing that stray dogs will do that's really like intelligent is they'll fake limps. So oh my god, I love it. Yeah, yeah, they'll like they'll like drag one leg on the ground and be like, "Oh no. Woe is me. I'm just a poor dog and it's that boy. I am just a good boy with I'm a, a good bad boy. leg." And then as soon as they get that sausage, they're like, "Yeah, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Got you. Suck it." <laughs> and then they hop away giving <laughs> giving you. <laughs> they run away giving you the middle mm-hmm. finger. Um <laughs> Pet dogs also do this, so sometimes my dog will shiver as if she's scared, and it's like usually after, so like there'll be a thunderstorm and she's shivering out of uh, true fear, and she gets a lot of attention, and then the next day, there's freaking nothing going on, <laughs> Not a cloud and in the she sky. starts shivering, I'm like, you want hugs and treats, and she's like, uh-huh, and then I also give it to her, though. Yeah. I do give in. Yeah. <laughs> She'd play to you like not, a fiddle. You're technically not supposed to. You're not, like, supposed to coddle them because they learn then right. to sh- do the fear response in order to get the coddling. But I just, I cod- I'm a coddler. What can I say? Well, yeah, it's like with kids when they, they learn that if they freak out. Like at Walmart, or I don't know why that was like yeah. a Target. They have a meltdown. You know, you and take you the kids to Walmart and they throw a tantrum. But then you buy them a thing. You buy yeah. them the thing to make them quiet. And then yeah. anytime you go anywhere, they start yeah. crying. I hope if and when I become a parent, I don't treat my children like I treat my children. <laughs> <laughs> we would, ho- it's like, I hope I would have mm-hmm. better, mm-hmm. Uh, better yeah. I think boundaries. So. I, I, I think so. Yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, <laughs> just me with a thousand mile stare of like, oh, damn it! Parent, do, <laughs> dog ra- dog raising is hard. Parenting, oh geez. Yeah. So the idea that they can kind of like tap into our human empathy and exploit it does tie into that theory of dog evolution that wolves with certain affable temperaments could exploit human kindness, and so they were kind of responsible for domesticating themselves. Maybe. Well, I think it's interesting that it's like domesticated going up in a bell curve and then as they became feral again right r- losing yes. some of the behaviors again but yeah c- yeah it's like you can't unknow what you know because so i don't like, think they're i don't think they're vicious right um, but they're, they're just not, not necessarily friendly yeah no tail wag. dogs but yeah they and they are more they have that pack structure i think they lo- like their ears get stiffer too they lose the spotted coats because what's interesting is that all domesticated animals share certain uh, genetic markers like the the weak cartilage in the ears that causes like floppiness pig, floppy ears like pigs cows dogs 
Um, notably, cats don't, don't have nope. those. <laughs> Sharp as knives, <laughs> those ears. Not, cats are not really as domestic. They're very close to their wild counterparts. They're very genetically similar to the wild cats. And then like uh, other things like spotted coats. You see that in cows, dogs, pigs, rabbits, right. you know. Um, boa constrictors. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like, I, I don't know if reptiles actually count in this, but like, yeah, most domesticated mammals share these genetic markers. And so then as dogs become more feral, they kind of lose some of those, lose some of those traits. Is the ears thing that like, okay, when they're stiff, they're better, they're eat, they can hear and they're more like aware. And then as they've been domesticated, it's like the, the chiller, lazier dogs <laughs> that get bred to be like pets. And so then they're just all of their skills. <laughs> they're just so relaxed. They're like, right. Or that they're like no. spotted coats. I don't. I'm like trying to. I don't to think. think so. I think it's just sort of arbitrarily attached to certain behavioral uh, traits. So like more, um, you know, the chiller behavior is. Some, it's just like for whatever reason, that, that is be less tough. less aggressive. Also, maybe less of certain hormones are attached to like uh. cartilage production. So these things just like. That just happen to be biologically linked, but there, I don't think there's any like actual structural purpose of like the ears flopping down. Sometimes my dog has one ear that sticks up, and the other one flops down. It's so cute. I just oh, this a bye, man. I got to wear the ears inside out, and I don't know. Don't you love it when cats get their ear turned inside out, and they're just like going around like. My ears broken. I'm just like you look like such an idiot. My Lola. ears broken. Fix it. Because Lola likes to look cool and smart all mm-hmm. the time, and mm-hmm. when she looks They're dumb, like, I'm like, you are yeah. an idiot. They're like they go from being like British Bond villain of like, mm, yes, feed me the tuna, to like, oh no, my ears broken, mommy. Mommy, fix my ears broken. <laughs> my favorite is when Lola rolls off the bed accidentally, and then like hits the deck and looks around like like tries to act like nothing just happened. Mm-hmm, I was mm-hmm. like, you fell. You're mm-hmm. dumb. <laughs> My dog sometimes miscalculates to jump on the bed and just like wipes out. And she she kind of just like looks around like, what the, what the heck just happened? <laughs> yeah, who did that? Who moved, Who's the, responsible? Who moved the couch? Who's responsible for this? No one moved the couch. <laughs> Nobody moved the couch. You're just stupid. Yeah. Yeah, you're just stupid. You don't do it, You're just stupid. stupid. So, we talked briefly about how dogs may have domesticated themselves, but they may not be the only ones. There's a theory that humans are self-domesticated, that the reason we can form societies and civilizations is our ability to be docile and cooperative, a trait we may have self-selected for. The theory is that humans depended on group dynamics to survive. We're not the strongest, fastest, or large toothiest of them all, but we are smart and we can work together. So groups of our pre-homo sapien ancestors would weed out those who were overly antisocial. So say there's that one asshole, Australopithecus, an early human ancestor, who we'll call Lucy. Lucy is a general asshole to other Australopithecae, especially one named, let's say, Charlie Grog. And whenever they're playing Kick the Oblong Rock, she pretends as if she's holding it for Charlie Grog, but then she lifts it up at the last second, causing his kick to send him flying onto his back. Then she smashes Charlie Grog's head in with the rock and eats his soft brain tissue. Lucy would quickly be excommunicated from the group of Australopithecus and left to die, 
her homicidal asshole genes meaning a quick end. Recently, genetic studies have shown this theory may have some solid scientific merit. Researchers compared the genomes of humans with that of domesticated animals, finding similar genetic markers that all domesticated animals share. So there you go, we probably domesticated ourselves. I am now going to scoot my butt across the carpet because science says I can. So I'm about to have an interview with Dr. Greg Pauly, but first, Katie, you got anything you want to plug? Oh, uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at K-A-W-I-L-L-E-R-T. That's at K-A Willert. Nice. Our names are the same. I know, <laughs> and it's spelled the same. It made me happy. We're doing a and d campaign together, too. Yes. <laughs> yes, it's the best. Stay, stay, there's a good dog. We'll be right back after these messages. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. (sighs) Good one, Dad. (sighs) Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. we're back. Joining me is Dr. Greg Pauly, researcher and herpetology curator at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County. He studies things like conservation genetics, the effects of urbanization, and he's a herpetologist. Greg, can you explain what that means to our audience? Yeah, so herpetology is the study of reptiles and amphibians. And then the curator part of what I do is uh, at the Natural History Museum, I do a combination of research 
sort of working on exhibits and outreach, and then maybe the most important part of my job is actually taking care of this uh, research collection, which is we have 190,000 research specimens that are shipped out to researchers all around the country um, for their own research needs. Now, are these uh, are these specimens alive or uh, preserved in some way? These are all 190 of those are preserved animals. So they're okay. animals that we either received dead or some researcher in the past used for their research and then it still had research you know, potential and so it was preserved and it's still right. now available for scientists to use. And so how do you maintain preserved, a uh, bunch of preserved reptiles? <laughs> yeah, so it'll depend on what kind of collection you're thinking about. For a collection like reptiles and amphibians, we have what are called wet specimens. Mm-hmm. So we preserve all of our animals first in formalin yeah. and then transfer them over to alcohol. And then they will stay in a jar of 70% alcohol for literally decades, yeah. you know, really centuries to come. Yeah, I've, I've seen like uh, specimens that are like hundreds of years old and they look pretty good. Yeah, uh. it's amazing. So we, that method of form, of preserving in formalin and then switching to alcohol, that method has only been around since about 1905, 1906. Yeah. And if you look at a specimen that was preserved that way, say in 1905 yeah. and you look at one that was preserved in 1940 you can't tell the difference yeah if i show you one that i preserved last year and i show you one that was preserved 30 years ago yeah there's a little bit of yeah. a difference but we estimate that these specimens if cared for properly will be useful for researchers yeah. for a minimum of 300 years yeah but there are specimens that were preserved in all sorts of bizarre ways usually like in some sort of alcoholic spirit mm. from the late 1600s that are still in European museums and still available for wow. research use. That's so, amazing. So like uh, does research ever take one of those really old specimens and do genetic testing on them? Or So it's funny. Like once you preserve something in formalin, it makes it really hard to get DNA out of oh, it really? for sequencing. Okay. So actually those older specimens that were never exposed to formalin mm-hmm. oftentimes are better at yielding really? DNA oh, that's so interesting. than say something that's from like the 1920s or the 1930s. Yeah. And then what we do today is before we expose it to formalin, we take a tissue sample. I see. So you have the DNA kind of locked Yeah. Away. So I, I, I curate the wet collection. We also have a skeletal collection. And on top of that, we have a tissue collection, which is in a negative 80 degree Celsius freezer. And so we have all these tissue samples. And so when researchers just want to look at a tissue, right. they can request that tissue sample and we might then ship that off to them for their, so for their cool. research. That's some Jurassic Park st- situation. Yeah, we on. hope <laughs> that nobody's cloning, you know, trying to bring back, you know, some yeah. animal that's not, that hasn't been approved. Yeah. But we're not too worried about that. Yeah, no, that that's awesome. So I wanted to talk to you a bit about the citizen science initiative that you and the Natural History Museum are doing so you're you're recruiting LA residents to help with documenting animal populations and behaviors. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what citizen science is and how it helps with your research? Yeah, so citizen science, I mean the basic idea of citizen science is it's crowdsourcing. It's basically asking members of the public to help answer to work with a professional scientist to help answer some research question. And as a, you know, museum curator, I have this amazing time machine. Mm-hmm. where I can go into the collections and I can find all these specimens that tell me for a place like L.A., you know, this absolutely amazing, huge city, one of the biggest cities in the world, we have these specimens that tell us where species were found at a particular place at a particular time. So we know like the distributions of species in the past. But how do you learn where some of those species are found today when everything is private property? Like it's right. not places that I can easily, as a scientist, go do research. Yeah, you can't take your team of grad students into someone's lawn up in yeah, the Hollywood not, Hills. Not legally, <laughs> usually. So in order to avoid being shot or, you know, getting yeah. getting trespassing tickets all the time, 
Um, we use this crowdsourcing approach. We use citizen science. So we basically just ask people to pull out their smartphones and their digital cameras and take photographs of what they see and upload it to this amazing website, this this online community uh, yeah. science or citizen science platform called iNaturalist. So by doing that, I can learn where things are found today, compare that to the historical records in the museums and see how ranges are shifting over the course of urbanization. So it has these you know massive conservation yeah. benefits and you can use that information for landscape and urban planning. But these photographs that people are taking aren't just like, oh, here's an animal right. and it shows you where it is. Yes, that's all true. But sometimes they're photographing really interesting ecological or behavioral phenomena yeah. as well. I, I know this because uh, so y you had asked for photos of uh, alligator lizards. And yeah, which is a totally normal thing to ask yeah, for, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I was um, I was thinking like, oh, that'd be cool if I could, could find them. But I, I didn't have much hope because I live in a very sort of... Uh, like a bunch of apartments and streets. And I thought there's no way they would want to be here. But there's a pair of them right in the middle of the sidewalk um, doing their weird mating ritual where the male bites down on the he female's head and they just like stay there. And so like there's all this foot traffic and like I'm on like kneel down onto the sidewalk with my phone and like do close ups and people are kind of laughing because it's like, you know, a little different. Here's the weirdo in the yoga pants taking photos of, of lizards getting it on. Um, but yeah, that is, it's really fun to kind of be feel like you're contributing to science without having to do any of the other hard work. Well, so this is, and this is such a great example. So what you have seen, right, mm -hmm. you've now seen two southern alligator lizards mating. Mm -hmm. I've lived within the range of the southern alligator lizard for 36 years of, no, yeah. 34 years of my life. I've never seen this. Um, you have now seen something that I've never seen, and yet I study this. And yeah. the reason <laughs> that we rely on citizen science is for exactly that. It's just random chance that you're going to happen upon them. And so if enough people know about yep. it, they'll uh, be able to... And everyone has smartphones now. So exactly. You, like you have your camera on you at all times. Yeah. And so, I mean, here you have the situation where an observation that's rarely observed by any one person, yeah. but by crowdsourcing it, we can generate this amazing data set. So as of this morning... Over five years of doing this on citizen science, we've generated a data set of roughly 350 observations. Wow. That's amazing. Well, I shouldn't say roughly. Incredible. I actually did the math this morning. So it's actually yeah. like 352 observations wow. of this morning. And five years of promoting this on citizen science. I myself have still never seen this. Yeah. In the entirety of the peer-reviewed scientific literature, there are three reported dates of when alligator lizards have been observed mating. Yeah. And so you That's can't do incredible. anything. You yeah. can't do anything with three observations. Like you can't infer... Yeah. Like how do how does the timing of breeding change right, with right. weather from year to year? The sample but, size is too small. Yeah, you can't you can't do any statistics yeah. on it. You can't infer any general patterns. But with three hundred and fifty observations, yeah, you can do all sorts of that's stuff. A, so th yeah, that's a good. I'm pretty sure. I'm still like a little hesitant to say this, but I'm pretty sure that the data set we've generated is the largest data set. Wow. Of like of matings yeah. for any lizard species ever. Yeah. Which is, I mean, pretty amazing. And I still haven't even seen this. And yeah. I know there's like some some listeners are like, uh, yeah, but like. What can you do with that? Like, right. But the reality is that for the entire field of animal behavior, a huge chunk of research is all about mating behaviors. Right, because that's sort of the necessary step to population growth. And yeah, I mean, it's kind yeah. of critical to yeah. keeping your species going. And so it's, you know, it's really common that people, and it's, there's so many amazing sort of evolutionary stories within that field of like mating yeah. behaviors and animal behaviors. So it's this amazing thing to be able to study. But for most species, you're never going to be able to generate enough observations. But yeah. you can solve that problem yeah. simply by crowdsourcing. So.
I remember, I think you guys, you released a really funny Valentine's Day call to action where it was like, uh, do you remember that? Uh, well, we've done this. So this was not, I wish this was my good idea, but it was not. It was um, somebody in our marketing group said, if you're, you know, if they breed in the spring, why are you announcing this in early March? Why don't you just announce it on Valentine's yeah. Day? And so we absolutely just started making, you know, we have this, we have this Nature in LA blog and it's a way to reach out to a broad audience to get people excited about, you know, nature events yeah. that are happening all across across the region. And so, yeah, we just started producing it on Valentine's Day. And I forget all the titles that we've used because we've, yeah. we've done a handful of these now. But it's basically, you know, just trying to, you know, get the word out. And yeah. Valentine's Day is a great day to do that because it's when when humans are thinking about sort of romance <laughs> and we've got alligator lizards yeah. thinking about romance. And yeah. so we'll just pair those things together. Love is and, in the air and also other odors related to uh, yeah. alligator lizards. There's all sorts of great stuff going on. Yeah. So. Um, what's... Have you ever gotten a really weird or exciting submission, like a submitted photo of something that's just like blew your mind? I mean, it's so hard for me to whittle it down to one because we get these amazing photographs. I mean, all the time. Like, yeah. I feel like I could give you a different answer to this almost every other week. Yeah. So, I mean, I think some of the neatest photos that we've received are things like, I mean, sometimes there's a single photo that literally does tell a thousand words. Yeah. And so that single photograph, um, for some of the cases that we've had recently, have been things like somebody took a photograph of some lizard species, for example, that had never before been documented in California. Wow. So a great example of this is this guy by the name of Glenn Yoshida. I hope Glenn doesn't mind me using his name. Um, and I never met Glenn when this story actually happened, but Glenn was walking into his house one day after work, and I think he even had, like, you know, groceries in one hand, and there's a gecko hanging out right above his front door. And he took a photo of this gecko, and he emailed it to the to the Natural History Museum where I work. And so he didn't actually just upload it to iNaturalist. He wasn't an iNaturalist user at the time. He just... He just sent it right to us. And so I got this email from Glenn and I was like, whoa, I don't, I basically, I mean, I knew it was a house gecko of some kind. So I knew the genus, but I didn't know what species it was. And so I actually emailed back to Glenn and I said, oh, hey, this is a really interesting find. Um, would, could I, could you send me your phone number? I'd like to chat with you about this. And so he sent me his, sent me his phone number. So I called him up. This is like two hours later. It's like yeah. nine o'clock on a Wednesday night or something. So I called up Glenn and I said, hey, you know, I, I know it's one of two species. I don't know which one. Neither has ever been documented as established in California. Um, do you have, have you seen multiple individuals? He goes, oh yeah, I've seen multiple individuals for a couple of years. And I said, okay, well, like, can I just come to your house tomorrow <laughs> at around 8 p.m.? And then we'll just wander around your yeah, neighborhood and see like if we can find more. looking for geckos, yeah. Yeah, just hanging out, looking for geckos. And he's like, yeah, you seem like a totally normal human, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, the next night I showed up at Glenn's house. We wandered around his house and we did find some more geckos. And once I had one in hand, I knew what it was. It's a thing yeah. called the Indo-Pacific gecko. Hmm. And, it's and an those all, are non-native. Yeah, it's not. It's for, yeah. I mean, it's from the Indo-Pacific region. So, in their native range, I mean, it's thousands of miles away from here. And so, but they are in Hawaii, and they get moved around in the nursery plant trade. There's also some populations. I in see. Florida. So they kind of hit you right on a plant and get exactly. Over here. Yeah. So, and, and it's an all-female species. So hmm. one individual shows up. She lays eggs. Her daughters hatch out. And then they grow up to lay eggs as well. Oh, I see. So it's it's a, a, like parthenogenesis. Exactly. So yeah. this is an asexual species, a yeah. parthenogenetic species. So it just takes one That's individual crazy. to start a new population. That's so crazy, yeah. And we see this a lot. A lot of these non-native species, particularly in reptiles, a yeah. lot of the non-native species that show up are these asexual lineages. Yeah. Because it only takes, you don't need two individuals. Again, you Jurassic don't need a pregnant Park. <laughs> yeah, and you get all these crazy things happening. So like yeah. literally a lot of my field work 
is doing things like wandering around neighborhoods in Torrance yeah. or wandering around neighborhoods in Orange or, you know, all across yeah. Southern California. I'm just out looking for geckos. <laughs> and so, but that one photograph and that triggered us doing this field work. I never would have found this on my own. It turns out they were only on basically Glenn's house. He doesn't know oh. how that happened. They actually died out after about five years. So they're mm. not there anymore. But we have since then found, actually two months after Glenn's discovery, we found them down in um, in Orange County as well, yeah. in the Lake Forest neighborhood. Again, a single photograph right. started that. And so Glenn and the, the gentleman down in um, in Lake Forest in Orange County, he made this discovery. His name is Bob Worrell. So Glenn and Bob and I, actually the three of us together, wrote up a little paper on this and oh, published wow. it. And so Glenn and Bob started out as you know, people taking photographs, being these sort of citizen scientists participating in this project. And then they went all the way through the scientific process, all the way to publishing in the peer-reviewed scientific literature. Wow. Which, and that that's all a, starts with one photo. That's like, amazing. So you can like, you can become uh, peer-reviewed if you have your yeah. iPhone and you take some if pictures. You get, if you yeah. end up happening to take a photograph that is somehow, you know, extra significant. Yeah. In Glenn and Bob's case, you know, these are the first uh, documented established populations of these geckos in the state of California. So first state record. And then first county record in L.A. and first county record in Orange. And so it was really significant. You know, yeah. most of the observations aren't something that's quite right, that right. significant, but are still really important for thinking about, you know, how species are responding to urbanization. And, of course, you know, this whole effort, this sort of citizen science effort, sort of using these photographs that are put up on iNaturalist, this has been going on for 10 years. Wow, yeah. That's a good I mean, amount of time to get it's some great, data. Yeah. But what about the scientists that are here 200 years from now? Yeah. 300 years That's, from now. Yeah. I mean, think about the digital legacy of biodiversity data that we're leaving these future scientists. Yeah. I mean, we're, it's amazing to think that like any person out there can actually create this absolutely amazing research, potentially yeah. of conservation value for for scientists of the future. Yeah. So we can think about leaving this like digital biodiversity data yeah. legacy. It's really kind of, and it plays into this whole idea of like now the, that it's everyone's responsibility what's happening to our planet and um, I think you know most people think about it in terms of like recycling and and being you know a good conservationist and that, that's all good but I think that there are these un, lesser known things that you can do and really take an active role yeah in helping conservation efforts I think that's a great way to think about it yeah and it's it truly is this absolutely amazing resource and so yeah. if we just think about like a place like Los Angeles 100 years ago or even 50 years ago, and you think about the species that were common here. And in fact, one of the species that was really common here was the horn lizard, which is mm -hmm. I know a species that yeah. you're super excited about. Yeah. <laughs> so that was the most common backyard lizard in um, some of the foothill communities in the San Gabriel Valley up until the 1950s. And they're now gone, yeah. completely gone. And so in this relatively short period of time, we've seen this massive change in the fauna. Yeah. Well, the data that we're generating today, we might even it might even be for common species, right? But it's the thing that we think is common now. Maybe fifty years from now, it won't be common. Yeah, and we'll we'll have a much more sort of like um, subtle. We'll see be able to track subtle changes much better with larger data. Sets. Exactly. Yeah. So um, the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County recently released a new book called "Wild LA: Exploring the Amazing Nature in and Around Los Angeles." Um, so I got a sneak peek and it's really beautiful. It's got these amazing photos and it's also really exciting for LA residents in understanding native species in our own backyards and being able to see like, oh, here's this cool photo and then know exactly like where the species kind of is found. Um, what are some of the unique things that people could learn from this book? So 
Yeah. So, I mean, this is, this was a really fun project to be a part of. Uh, I'm one of the four authors. Um, and it's, it's really written for people who live in Los Angeles or even, or people who are visiting Los yeah. Angeles because it's, the book is really in three parts. It's sort of like 10 introductory chapters. And as you said, tons of photos, tons of factoids, like lots of these little call outs. And then there's 101 species accounts and it's native and non-native species. Yeah. And every, and a lot of it are the common species that people are going to see on a daily basis, but there's also aspirational species like bighorn sheep and, and mountain lions, you know, things yeah. that you're unlikely Very to rare. see, but yeah. like you, you might see them if you get lucky. And then it ends with 25, um, 25 recommended excursions all across the Los oh, Angeles cool. region. And so for people who are coming in from out of town, yeah. it's like we sort of hope that this is like one-stop shopping. Like grab yeah. the book. You can quickly plan out a couple hikes. You can identify some of the stuff that you see. Yeah. And you can learn a lot about sort of nature in Los Angeles and why it's interesting. Um, I think so, that when people think about L.A., they think like Hollywood, the the Hollywood star walk of fame, but there really is some pretty amaz- amazing habitats So that's the, that's the single most, that's the single biggest message we have in this book, which yeah. is that L.A. is an absolutely amazing place for nature. And so I have a couple of factoids that I always like try to share with people. Yeah. Um, so, and I think this is something that like Angelina should be bragging about and it's something that people should be coming to L.A. to mm-hmm. experience. So, um Quick, quick first factoid. This is actually one of my favorite things about Los Angeles. So Californians always brag that you can ski and surf in the same day, mm-hmm. which is true. But LA naturalists can also brag as well because you can see wild bighorn sheep and green sea turtles in the same day. Wow. And this is totally doable. Like we could actually. Yeah. How, how would you go about doing that? So it's actually not that hard. So first of all, the sea turtle part is almost guaranteed. Yeah. Because the northernmost resident population of sea turtles is in the lower San Gabriel River in Long Beach. Oh, wow. And as long as it isn't, as long as it hasn't been a, a day with recent rain so that the river is up and maybe it's kind of murky and, and it's, sometimes it's easy to mistake, you know, some chunk of trash for maybe a turtle that just quickly pops <laughs> its head up and disappears. But if you go on like a regular day where it hasn't had like a recent flood event, you're almost guaranteed to see a green sea turtle. And the crazy thing is that the platform above the river that you can stand on to w- look at these green sea turtles, at times these turtles pop up and they're like eight feet away from you. Like a green, a wild green sea turtle. That's like, amazing. That's incredible. So that yeah. alone, like... So you don't have to go out like scuba diving to see No, you sea just, turtles. you can like be sitting there in your flip-flops and t-shirt, sunglasses and hat, and you're just like, there's a sea turtle. Wow. My day is made. Head back, go grab a margarita somewhere. And then after the margarita, you go see a bighorn sheep. Yeah, so the bighorn is not quite as guaranteed, but also you have a good shot at. And the mm-hmm. way to go see a bighorn sheep is you drive up into the San Gabriel Mountains up towards Mount Baldy. And there's a couple of good spots. We recommend a few of them in the book. There's a couple of good spots where you can stop and check them out. And actually, one of the funny things that happened to us is as we were doing research for the book, we went up to Mount Baldy, up to the ski area. And, you know, it's only like an hour and 20 minute drive or something like that from downtown LA. So we just zipped up there and got out of the car, walked like six steps. And I look over and there's these two rams just on the hillside right across from the parking lot. I mean, we couldn't have planned it better. And it was like, okay, well, like, we're done. You know, let's get a few photos and go home. And then the funny thing that then happened is that in our photographer, who's also one of the writers, Charles Hood, was there, and we were trying to get some photos of these of these rams. And what we didn't know at the time, but we quickly learned, is that um, during certain times of the year, the rams have all of these dominance behaviors. Mm. And so they basically engage in lots of sort of homosexual behaviors. And so really? they'll do things like mounting each other. Oh, I see. As yeah. these, you know, standard sort of dominance displays, yeah. like not at all uncommon. Like female like, hyenas do yeah, to each hyenas, other. Hyenas, lots of canids do it. So like not at all uncommon, but we couldn't necessarily use a photograph of 
two very, you know, very clearly rams, <laughs> like, you know, big curving horns. We couldn't use photos of those. Like if we're only going to have one photo of bighorn sheep in the book, right, right. we didn't think that the probably the best photo to have yeah. is sort of this photo that's got this complex sort of behaviors yeah. behind it. Well, not, not in today's society. Maybe soon. <laughs> Maybe soon. <laughs> Hopefully. So yeah. it would have taken a longer caption, like, but it is such a, I mean, so we actually, you know, we, we literally could have done that. If we turned around that day and went straight back down, we could have seen bighorn sheep and green sea turtles. That's amazing. Day. And like, that's like pretty much the only place in the world that you could sort yeah. of do that. And what an amazing thing to be able to do. Yeah. You know, and you're at, in both of those cases, you're like never more than like probably 30, yeah. 35 miles as the crow flies from downtown. And LA. almost completely opposite sort of like uh, biomes. Yeah. Very, very different. Yeah. yeah. Very different. And each of them has their own, like, this is one of the things that we really try to focus on in Los Angeles is like, we've had so much change, you know, because of urbanization. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the modification of the L.A. River and the San Gabriel River and all those things that have happened, that every single species you see has this absolutely amazing story. Like yeah. green sea turtles have an amazing story. Bighorn sheep and how they're managing to make it in the San Gabriels, you know, is a really interesting story. But, you know, how the eastern fox squirrel that we can almost certainly see, you know, right on the block outside of the studio, yeah. they have an amazing story as to how they got here. You know, every species here has an amazing story. And we yeah. tell as many of those as we can in this book. That's fantastic. Uh I think as I mean, even if you're just coming to visit as a tourist, I feel like the Hollywood Walk of Fame is a little bit overrated, super crowded, kind of annoying. It, it is a sidewalk. Uh, it's a si- it's basically a sidewalk and people dressed as avatar blue avatars uh, screaming at you um, and like 70 Jack Sparrows. It's not that cool. Uh, I think going and visiting some of the really incredible natural habitats around LA is a lot cooler. I mean, I think, you know, when people say, oh, there's not much nature in LA, my my response is always, there are 12 million people who can get onto public transit and can be guaranteed to see yeah. a mid-sized carnivore by the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. And it's easy to do that. All you have to do is show up at Griffith Park right around sunset yeah. and hang out around the picnic tables, right where the picnic table grounds meet the edges of the, of the sort of coastal sage scrub there, the chaparral there. And at dusk, every single night, coyotes wander through there. Yeah. And like, what do you mean there's no nature in LA? Got, <laughs> I guarantee you, I can, I can 12 million people can go see a coyote on any yeah. given night. Like, that's incredible. Yeah, you yeah. Know? And it should be celebrated. Like, this is an amazing place <laughs> to see nature. It really is. Uh, so we've been talking today about urban avoiders, exploiters, and adapters. Uh, do you have a favorite story of urban exploitation or adaptation? I mean... I think that the Eastern Fox Squirrel is a pretty amazing. Yeah, let's see that I mean, there's so one. many stories of like yeah. amazing stories. But here in Los Angeles, I think especially the, the Eastern Fox Squirrel. And this has actually played out over many cities. The Eastern Fox Squirrel has been introduced to a huge numbers of, of cities in the Western U.S. The closest that species should get to here is like Central Texas. Yeah. But um, here in the Los Angeles region, what happened is that we have the Sawtell Veterans Home, or what used to be called the Sawtell Veterans Home. It's actually quite close to UCLA. It's just yeah. it's just west of the 405 Um in sort of the West LA region. And so in the, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, the people who were living at the Sawtell veterans homes were mostly civil war soldiers. And so mm-hmm. we had people there who might've grown up in Kentucky or Tennessee or elsewhere in the Eastern U S and it's not totally clear whether they were pets or whether they were being raised for food, but they had a bunch of Eastern Fox squirrels like in pens. Yeah. And what they would do is they would take scraps from the, the commissary or from the cafeteria there, and they would give the scraps to the squirrels. And eventually some, you know, administrator said, hey, that's a waste of government-funded, you know, food. And so you have to get rid of those squirrels. Yeah. And so the story is that the squirrels were then released. 
But at that point, you have, you know, L.A. sort of building up. You've got, you know, telephone lines and power lines running all across the place. And so instead of having to run around down low yeah. where all these cars are, these squirrels are just running around yeah. on all these power I'm sure lines. sure everyone's like, seen a squirrel on a power oh, line. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, in fact, we actually, you're asking about interesting iNaturalist observations. I just saw a photo two weeks ago of an eastern fox squirrel that had been electrocuted. You know, oh, boy. Oh, no. And it's like, well, that's horrible, but it's also like an, it's an interesting aspect of sort of urban nature. Yeah. Like yeah. there are these unusual sort of aspects of the urban you environment. You smell the, the, a burning squirrel if yeah. You're yeah. lucky. It smells good just for like the first few minutes. And then once it once it hits well done, so it too, doesn't smell as good. Yeah, Gordon Ramsay so, would have a fit. It's like, it's too well done. Yeah. Um, you got to take it off just in time. And so, um, you know, they have this amazing story of how this is this non-native squirrel that has now spread all across the landscape. And it's totally doing well here because it just happens to do really well in urban places. It doesn't need a high density of trees. Our native western gray squirrel needs high densities of trees. The squirrel, it's like, yeah, I've got some, you know, I've got some lawn, I've got an occasional tree, I've got yeah. some cat food to eat, I've got some fruit. <laughs> so they just do really well in urban places. So it's this species that's doing incredibly well as an urban exploiter. That's amazing. Um, so do you have any calls to action that you can give people or anything else to plug? So I think, I mean, the biggest call to action I, I would suggest to folks is um, get involved in a citizen science project. You so know? how do you, how would you do that? So I think it's really easy. Um, most people are already walking around with smartphones and mm -hmm. that smartphone for reasons that are not clear, mostly historical artifact. We still call it a phone, even <laughs> though we use it for dozens of other things. You know, that, that smartphone has a so, GPS in yeah, it. Yeah. It's a lizard it's got sex a camera. cam. It's yeah. a lizard sex cam. You can take all sorts of great lizard sex shots. And so, yeah, you, people can just pull out their cameras and start taking photos and the best thing to do is to download this app called iNaturalist. Um, there's a web platform for iNaturalist and there's an app. You can download this app. You take the photos through the iNaturalist app. It uploads them to iNaturalist. You can see your photos online. You can participate in literally one of hundreds of projects on iNaturalist on that platform. Here in Southern California, I always promote our projects at the Natural History Museum. So my my research is on uh, is this project called Reptiles and Amphibians of Southern California. We have another uh, and the acronym for that is RASCALS. We happen to like, mm -hmm. really like acronyms. Um, we have a snail and slug project, which mm. is snails and slugs living in metropolitan environments. That's mm -hmm. called SLIME, again, because we love Oh, nice. <laughs> um, and then we also have the Southern California Squirrel Survey, which which sadly we did not come up with mm. a great acronym for. Um, but those are all projects that people here in Southern California can participate in. But no matter where people are, yeah. there are there are observations up on iNaturalist from every continent you know, from all around the world. And so no matter where people are, they can start doing this and making observations that, you know, researchers today and researchers into the future might might be then using. That's great. So like all, like whenever people take photos of a squirrel and try to send it to all their friends and your friend's not necessarily going to care, but iNaturalist is. So yeah, that's exactly finally right. Got someone to yeah. Somebody this. actually yeah. does yeah. care about that squirrel photo. Yeah, yep. yeah. It's like, oh, I found a really fat squirrel. Friends don't care. iNaturalist yep, do. Exactly. Scientists to the rescue. Well, thank you so much for uh, sitting down and letting me grill you over these, these reptile stories. And Always happy to chat about citizen science. Um, you can find us on Twitter at CreatureFeetPod. That's not feet as in stinky feet. It's feet as in F-E-A-T. And you can find me at Katie Golden. Golden is spelled wrong, by the way. It's G-O-L-D-I-N. And you can also, uh, you know, follow me on my bird Twitter at ProBirdWrites, where I'm a bird. And, you know, that's what I am on Twitter, is a bird. 
And thanks to the Space Cossacks for their awesome song, Exolumina. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.